electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good afternoon and welcome to Power Lunch, everybody. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson, and we've got a big market day. The Dow up about 500 points. And coming up, the auto strikes are almost over. GM reaching a tentative deal with the UAW after Ford and Stellantis did as well. So do these deals set the U.S. auto industry up for success or cripple the companies with long-term costs? Plus, President Biden issues an executive order on artificial intelligence. It covers safety, civil rights, and Maybe the biggest threat of all from AI, will it take humans' jobs away? We'll discuss the impact this could have with a great panel. Kelly? Looking forward to that, Tyler. But first, let's get a check on these markets. The Dow is leading the way with a 1.5% gain of 506 points today. The S&P, the Nasdaq gains are now approaching about 1.2%. The laggard has been the Russell 2000s. McDonald's reporting results this morning, beating on the top and bottom lines. Same store sales up more than 8%, thank you to higher menu prices. You can see, of course, that's helping the Dow. The shares are up about 2%. And a real estate deal to tell you about, Realty Income buying Spirit Realty Capital for $9.3 billion. No relation to Spirit Halloween, by the way. Uh, They own more than 2,000 properties, mostly retail stores and warehouses. That stock is up 8%. The acquirer down 5% today. And as Tyler mentioned, GM reaching a tentative deal with the union to end the six-week strike. Although General Motors shares are only up about a third of a percent right now. Ford is, uh, I'm sorry, Stellantis still positive. Ford is negative. Let's get right out to Phil LeBeau for more details here. Hi, Phil. Kelly, for the UAW, this has worked out better than I think many expected it to be uh, like this. And when they started these negotiations, take a look at what they have won from Ford, GM and Stellantis. Roughly speaking, we still need to see the final details from GM and Stellantis. The length of the contract, four and a half years, a pay hike of 25 percent, over 30 percent with cost of living, higher starting worker pay and higher pay for temporary workers who are a big component for the, uh, the big three and a boost in retiree benefits. For the 150,000 approximately UAW members, what's next? Ratification votes. They will be going over the contracts. Ford already started that process. Ford workers started that process last night. We'll see that with GM and Stellantis. And over the coming weeks, we'll see ratification votes taking place. For the big three, they can now begin gradually resuming production. And the production that they've lost, they'll start to make some of that up through overtime, but it's going to take some time before they can make up everything that was lost, and they won't make up everything that was lost during this strike. And that's what we're going to see for GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Finally, take a look at shares of the automotive suppliers. They have been beaten down as this strike has gone on, bared out with a note saying that the end of the strike is a moderate positive for the auto suppliers, but really little in the auto space is working right now, guys, whether it's the auto suppliers, the auto stocks, dealers facing a different situation, so they're in a little better shape. All right, Phil, thanks very much. And uh, here to continue our conversation on the impact that these deals may have and the road ahead for the automakers is Tom Narayan, global auto analyst with RBC Capital Markets. Tom, welcome. Good to have you with us. I guess what investors wonder is whether... um, these settlements were, are, are currently baked into the stock prices we're seeing and, and, and how they will affect the stock price going forward. 
Yeah, I think we've done some math on this to show that the net impact of a 25% um, increase in labor costs, remember it's over four and a half years, is actually only about 100 to 150 basis point negative impact to profit margins, which is no small matter, but basically your 7% margin, let's say, goes to six. So I think they'll be able to digest it. The bigger issue and probably why these stocks have not been uh, up that much on the, the news of the of the deal being struck is the EV slowdown. That has been plaguing these stocks all last week and into this week. It's a much bigger story, a much longer term story than this. We're gonna have a pretty quick snapback, I think, to this in terms of production. It may not make up the whole loss as, as Bill was saying, but certainly I think this is secondary to the bigger story in autos, which is the, the EV slowdown. So let's talk about that. Why, why is there an EV slowdown? And is it in part because uh, in the U.S. market especially, there is still a heavy, heavy interest for SUVs and heavier vehicles. Uh, and that is not an area that, so far at least, has been really penetrated by the automakers. Yeah, that's, that's one of the key reasons is the form factor. Um, you know, a lot of fuel folks don't know this, but the the biggest driver of battery range is not actually the size of the battery. It's the aerodynamics of the car. It's the reason why uh, Tesla didn't really make an SUV or didn't go aggressively in it. They're not very aerodynamic. So uh, that is one factor. The bigger reason, though, I think is the early adopters, the people who bought the $60,000, $70,000 Teslas, those guys are kind of done already. Now we're into like at the main street, you know, the buyers of the EVs who aren't as, you know, EV friendly. They, they don't realize charging is actually everywhere. Uh, they think they need 300 miles of range. So it's a lot of education for those buyers to get uh, comfortable with it. Lastly, I would say pricing. I think overall auto pricing needs to come down. You heard what Elon said on his call is an affordability issue, high interest rates. So you put all these three things together, I think that's what's causing the slowdown. So let's go back to these. Uh, that, that's a very interesting explanation, and, and, I, and I buy it uh, completely about the early adopters uh, having gone in at a higher price point, and now you ha have a mass market that you have to uh, exploit and tackle. Let's go back to the big three. Uh, what's your view of those three stocks? Yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit challenging uh, in the near term. I don't know how long the near term is. Um, you know, uh, you have price mix. That's my biggest concern for these companies. It's been up like 30, 35 percent from 2019 to 2022. Uh, I mean, a lot of sectors are seeing crazy inflation, right? But you're seeing affordability hit uh, some consumers, high interest rates, et cetera. So I think price mix coming down will be difficult on profitability. Now, a lot of this is already priced into the stocks, but it's difficult in a cyclical industry to tell folks to buy auto stocks when numbers are coming down. Uh, so I think it could be somewhat challenging. And they have to figure out this EV slowdown. A lot of them, like Ford notably, is very heavily invested here. Um, if EV demand doesn't come in, it's going to take more losses. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, I think in the near term, it's going to be a kind of a slugfest. Uh, price mix probably will come down, and it may keep folks um, at the sidelines. Tom, I've been thinking a lot about Toyota lately and whether the mm -hmm. hybrid approach is being vindicated uh, if it looks like consumers are actually kind of turning towards that option is the best way to hedge and kind of get both the range, uh, but also the peace of mind of having, you know, gasoline supplies in their car. And I know they've obviously done everything up to the minivan at this point. And for years, it looked like hybrid uh, was going to be the wrong approach and the market was unforgiving about it. 
I wonder if the tide is turning now. And if it is, who else does that favor? And what does that mean for the investments that Ford and GM have made? Yeah, this is definitely the hot topic all day, um, is now there's just an emergence of hybrid. Um, I think it could be near term, certainly. And take a look at Toyota's profitability. It's done really well by not capitulating and doing EVs. And maybe it's a smarter approach, right? Wait for everybody else to slug it out and get the cost down and then and then do EVs later. That might be. And take a look at Stellantis. That's another example of a company that has somewhat underinvested on EVs. And in the U.S., it's it's Jeep and Ram. They don't really have to electrify those. So a hybrid approach has definitely worked well for Toyota. Maybe being underinvested on EVs is smart, and you see Stellantis benefiting. Take a look at Stellantis stock chart versus Ford and GM over the past few months, and you'll see a very big um, contrast there. So you may be onto something, but ultimately, I think these are all near-term dynamics. Um, some people are playing this thesis, let's wait it out, see the costs come down, then we'll go all in. Um, so I, I don't really know the answer to that, but we do know, let's not forget, electrification is happening. Um, it's just, I think we've hit a little bit of a slow patch. Maybe hybrids could be a near-term solution. All right, Tom, thanks very much. Tom Narayan, we appreciate it. Good. So interesting. The end of those auto strikes. Uh, good news for the chip makers, which supply chips for cars that were held up as production was hampered. Let's get to Christina Partsinevelis for a look at which companies could be breathing a sigh of relief, Christina. But also, it comes at a time, it sounds like, that maybe the industry is at, at risk of being oversupplied as it is. Exactly, which is why I was going to flip your question on its head and say that some of these, you know, hardest hit chip names might actually not see a rebound. And the reason for that, let's start with the, the stocks. The SMH has been down, what, 8% since the UAW first announced its strike in mid-September. Silk and carbide makers will speed down, what, 36%. STM Electronics on semi down about 29%. Analog chip names that are also exposed to the auto sector faring even worse, down double digits. Texas Instrument hitting a 52-week low today. And yet, Few of these chip makers actually commented on the strike, and that could be because of the longer car design cycle, which would have less of an impact because most of those orders were put in place a long time ago, with Analog Devices CEO saying on their earnings call, quote, the effect on our business so far has been very de minimis, and NXP saying, we've experienced this in the past. That didn't really have an impact. So to your point, Kelly, the issue with a lot of these auto chip names is auto demand. Texas Instrument and Intel both said last week the sector is still resilient. But bears, including your previous guest, point to the frequent price cuts at EV leader Tesla due to weaker consumer spending. Even on semi issued a disappointing Q4 outlook this morning. And part of that reason was because of weak EV demand coming from Europe. Although we know auto production, or I should say we, the analysts are saying auto production is expected to grow 8% in 2023, slowing EV penetration does present a risk to a lot of these auto-exposed semiconductor names and could result in a cautious earning call from Wolfspeed, which is out tonight, and Microtrip reporting next week. So it may not necessarily be that breather you're hoping for. Yeah, and on semi is one of the worst stocks in the market today after they sounded like they said you know, they expected some kind of normalization of the oversupplied market, but then low demand because of high interest rates has kind of extended that timeline. Precisely. So I think I, I should have mentioned that interest rates do play a big role in all of this. On Semi CEO was on our network around 11 a.m. and really tried to convince the audience that although EV demand has started to slow, specifically more in Europe, he believes 
the entire pie, the portion of market share that can grow from EV is only going to grow in 2024. Let's just see, because there seems to be, I was just reading a note right now from one analyst saying, hmm, he's thinking maybe the second half of 2024, so there could be some weakness just in the following seven months or so from now. So uh, it seems like there's a lot of debate about auto demand at the moment within the chip space. All right, Christina, thanks very much. Christina Parsonevelis, appreciate Thank it. Thank you. You got it. Up next, the ghost in the market machine. Despite strong data and somewhat resilient consumer and better than expected earnings, investors are still selling names they feel are too vulnerable in the event of a crash. That said, markets are climbing today. We're near session highs. The Dow up around 500 points right now, 505. Much more on the markets when Power Lunch returns. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back, everybody. Stocks rebounding strongly today after a slow and persistent sell-off in recent weeks and months, uh, which has come despite the strongest quarterly GDP in two years. Uh, Also, consistent consumer spending and inflation backing off just a bit. So Mike Santoli is here to explain it all to us. Mike? Yeah, Tyler, and obviously the market always attempts to look ahead several months at least and maybe anticipate an inflection point in the way the economy is going to go. But this current period, especially the last three months, has been pretty stark paradox between very, very weak economically cyclical stocks and a very strong here and now economy based on the data. Look at the consumer discretionary group as an equal weighted uh, index, as well as transports over the last three months down close to 20 percent each. Uh, That, remember, was a 4.9 percent GDP quarter uh, that we recently had reported. So uh, the question here is, Does the market have it right or have we overshot in the short term? That equal weighted consumer discretionary ETF is trading at about 12 and a half times forward earnings. Obviously, those earnings could come down if, in fact, the economy hits a speed bump. And everything, of course, is is hinging on the rapid move up in bond yields. The market implicitly is saying the economy can't easily handle it. Earnings next year are too high based on what yields have done. That, to me, is the debate at this point, especially when you consider earnings forecasts over the next 12 months are up over the past three months uh, by a few percent as the S&P 500 has fallen 10 percent, Kelly. Indeed. Uh, Michael, thank you. As stocks are jumping today, people are selling bonds, sending yields higher. Let's uh, get out to Rick Santelli in Chicago for more. Rick? Yes, yields are higher and stocks are dramatically higher. Imagine that. And when we look at that outside session we had a week ago, it has proved to be highly accurate. If you look at the 23rd, the 23rd had an outside session. And since then, and by the way, that's the only close above 5%. Since then, the range has been 20 basis points, 499 to 479. Why do I pay so much attention to that? 
because there's so much excitement in things like the TLT and all the issues and all the brokerages and all the institutional investors saying, ah, that's it, the high yield's in, and we're seeing big inflows as many look at these juicy yields and say, wow, I want to get involved. And all that may be true, but you can't read that much into the market. Is it a top? Well, until we close either below four and three quarters or above 5%, this is kind of no man's land. And if you consider the fact, as Mike was just pointing out, 4.9% GDP in the last quarter and nobody's expecting the Fed to raise rates, what I hear is, is the Fed doesn't believe their own numbers or their own models. Because with the price GDP index moving up from 3.2 to 4.2 and nearly 5% GDP, they should tighten if they believe the numbers. Finally, we have the Bank of Japan meeting tonight for the beginning of its meetings. The dollar-yen, well, the dollar is down a bit today after a very rare close above 150 last Thursday. Does this mean yield curve control is going to be under review? We can only hope so. Kelly, back to you. Mm. All right, Rick, thank you. And that has been a big part of what's going on in global bond land. With a big week ahead, a Fed decision, jobs data, more tech earnings. Stocks are rallying today, but our next guest says investors are building in caution in case the data and earnings start to worsen. He's picking stocks that allow some margin for error in case a recession emerges quicker than expected. Let's bring in Mike Bailey, director of research with FBB Capital Markets. It's good to see you, Mike. And by the way, just curious, what makes uh, what do you think accounts for the very positive tone today? Yeah, you know, I, I think that we're getting a bit of a break last week. It was sort of, you know, just uh, markets were getting hit left and right by bad news. You had Google out there. Meta was pretty mixed. Today, things are okay. You know, one of the bigger companies out there was McDonald's. Earnings are pretty good. Certainly doesn't have a whole lot to do with the tech companies, but absence of bad news from big tech and people are waking up, you know, it's a brand new week. Maybe they had a nice weekend. Hey, wait a minute. Tech is trading at a nice discount now. So maybe folks are getting a little bit more excited about it and they're putting their money where their mouth is today. Do you think that's prudent of them? Uh, so it, it depends. I think for us, in terms of, you know, do you want to buy the dip? Do you want to buy some of the big tech stocks after they've taken a hit? Depends where you're coming from. So if you're maybe underweight your equity allocation, now's a good time. Go take a look. You know, stocks in general are trading cheaper than they have over the past 10 years. That's pretty compelling. That's a good time to take a look. The other angle is maybe now's the time to buy the dip and add to quality. So maybe there's something you've been hanging on to, anchoring to the stock for a while. Maybe it's a loser. You're struggling. Get out of it. You know, try something new. There's a lot of quality companies out there trading at a discount. Pepsi, McDonald's, you know, companies like that, exceeding investor expectations and trading at a discount. That builds in some some uh, cushion in case we hit a recession. So it's a good time to, to add to some of these quality names. You, you mentioned Pepsi and McDonald's. In the last week or so, there have been some people who have been talking about how the uh, weight loss drugs may sort of curb the appetite for those companies and for those stocks. Are you a subscriber to that? Uh, train of thought. Uh, totally disagree. Completely disagree. We've certainly we've we've heard the haters out there. Uh, I was a healthcare analyst for a long time, so I'm familiar with some of these drugs. Uh, there's a lot of questions out there. How many people are going to take these GLP ones, Ozempic, Wegovy, etc.? At this point, even if the bullish Wall Street estimates are correct, you're maybe talking about five percent of the U.S. population. A lot of those folks don't go to McDonald's. They don't drink Pepsi products. So I think there's a lot of fear built in. People are you know, selling now. They're going to come back later and figure out, hey, wait a minute, if these companies are still here, they're still growing, and you're getting some of that opportunity to discount. So we really would push back and see that a little bit differently. I, I know we have results coming out from Apple and NVIDIA later uh, in this cycle here. Let's talk specifically about Apple, which is a company you own. What do you think? 
So good company, uh, I think, of the mega cap techs, Magnificent 7. This is one where we are seeing a bit of a slower growth period, I think, compared to some of the others. So it's a good company. It is kind of transforming into almost a consumer company, very nice recurring sales on the services side. You're paying for that. It's got a pretty full multiple. So it's a good company. It's got a very nice growing dividend. I think for us, if we had to make one or two decisions, we might buy something else. We might buy an Amazon or Google here, but Apple's a good company. Put it away. Uh, you know, something again, good to own for the long term. But you know, I think we'd rather at this point tactically stick and add to some of the other. That's a very uh, honest answer, and I, I have to say, uh, tonally, one that that sort of surprised me. You don't hear. You usually hear people saying about Apple, it's a great company, not a good company. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's certainly a debate out there on Wall Street. Uh, they've got an excellent track record. I think for us, you know, growth is pretty critical and exceeding uh, investor expectations. They've done a great job historically. Maybe they're in between the product cycles at the moment. So again, good company, longer term. But if you want to buy something right now, what business is really growing, exceeding expectations and trading at a discount? There's a couple of those out there. Now, again, Amazon maybe looks a little more compelling. Google also more compelling. So uh, really, you want to make sure you're diversified within that mega cap tech. Mike Bailey, thank you very much. Appreciate your candor today. Thank you. All right, further ahead, following the earnings momentum this season, building up to be cutthroat, to say the least. Investors tougher than ever on companies, no more riding the coattails of price hikes and AI hype. So which names are on trend to beat results? We'll get you some technical support coming up soon. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Oil falling 3% today, even as uh, fighting intensifies in the Gaza Strip. Uh, the threat of a supply disruption seems to be relatively limited. Pippa Stevens joins us now with more. Pippa? Today's drop is a continuation of what we've been seeing. As Rebecca Babin at CIBC categorized it, Friday is what if, Monday is what is. And so traders don't want to go into any weekend with so much uncertainty on the short side. And so we keep seeing prices rally on Friday. And then come Monday, when the conflict has not escalated, then traders start to back out of those positions. We also did get data out of Germany today and showing that their economy shrank in the third quarter. They are, of course, the largest economy in the eurozone. So that does have read-through implications for, uh, for oil demand. Then we have the Federal Reserve uh, this week, this meeting this week as well. So a lot of unknowns in the market right here. Although all that said, the World Bank was the latest to warn today about what an escalation in the conflict could mean for oil. What, what, what kind of escalation would, be, uh, would, would send oil prices higher? I assume it would be the involvement of Iran, something in the Straits of Hormuz, the, exactly. in the Gulf. Exactly. So those are the regions to watch. It's the Middle East beyond Israel and, mm -hmm. and the Gaza Strip. And so the World Bank said that in their kind of worst case scenario, between 6 million and 8 million barrels per day of production is taken offline. And that would cause prices to jump 75% to over $150. So they are the latest to say that. However, that remains a very far out possibility. And their base case is actually that Brent averages $81 next year as OPEC unwinds its production cuts and then global demand and slows. And so these are very far out possibilities. But I think that, you know, people are warning you can't just ignore what might potentially happen. Quickly, has the market forgotten about Ukraine and Russia? That's a very good question, because that has more of a direct impact. But it just seems like 
you know, uh, it, you, the, the market is very frenetic. And so now that this is very much front and center and that region is a larger producer, particularly now that Russia has been sidelined a little bit, I think that this region is seen as if something happens here, mm-hmm. the, the consequences could be that much more significant. Mm-hmm. But you cannot ignore Russia, Ukraine. That is still very much yeah. in play and that's still impacting and, oil. And indeed, there, I guess you, you sort of say the market is saying, okay, so it is what it is. It, and it has been that way for some time now. So it's not the new new. Exactly. And remember, it's oil spe- exactly, and oil spiked above 130 when that first happened. And so you give yeah. some time to see what the longer term impacts are. All right, Pippa, thanks. Let's get to Contessa Brewer now for a CNBC News update. Contessa. Kelly, a federal judge in Texas, issued a temporary restraining order today blocking Homeland Security from removing razor wire along the border that was installed by Governor Greg Abbott's administration. The Biden administration argues the wire is a humanitarian and a safety risk. The next hearing in the case is scheduled for November 7th. The Department of Education is penalizing student loan servicer Mohila for failing to send timely billing statements to two and a half million borrowers this month. That's when loan payments resumed after a three-year pause. Now the feds are withholding more than $7 million in payment to the servicer and demanding forbearance for all affected borrowers until this issue is resolved. And Kim Kardashian is getting into business with the NBA. The league announced today Her company, Skims, will become the official underwear partner of the NBA, the WNBA, and USA Basketball. Skims launched its first men's line last week. The company was recently valued at $4 billion. Basketball players are real people, too. Tyler. I just don't know what to say. Yeah. But that's a a good one. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Contest. Thanks. Head on Power Lunch. The White House unveiling an aggressive AI executive order. We will discuss how they plan to handle the growing technological marvel and what it could all mean for the big tech firms involved. Power Lunch will be right back. See you then. Welcome back, everybody. The White House rolling out a sweeping executive order today aiming to monitor and regulate the risks of artificial intelligence while also harnessing its potential. Uh, This uh, marking the latest effort to address the rapidly evolving technology that has sparked concern among world leaders. Here to discuss is Neelay Patel, editor-in-chief at The Verge, and James Pethokoukas, economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute. They're both CNBC contributors, by the way, and Eamon Javers, you know him. He's going to give us the latest from D.C. Eamon, why don't I kick it off with you? What did this executive order uh, say? Well, Tyler, it's kind of a kitchen sink executive order from the Biden administration today. They're addressing a whole host of things and bringing in all sorts of elements of national power here, so to speak. They're using using the Defense Production Act here in order to compel companies that are uh, engaging in large-scale AI to share with them their safety testing results. That is, they'll have to come to the U.S. government and tell them how these things are testing. They're also going to invoke some standards uh, and rulemaking procedures. They're also concerned about things like discrimination in AI uh, and trying to make sure that there are federal guidelines around making sure that uh, discrimination is not built into AI accidentally, so to speak. So it's it's a whole range of things here. uh, And at the same time, trying not to sort of squash innovation and the development of this new technology, even as they're trying to channel some of the safety uh, and negative consequences of it. All right, Neelayla, what do you think of uh, what the the, uh, administration has proposed here? How sweeping is it? How, How effective might it be? It is very sweeping, and it is uh, pretty much a grab bag of things that, in particular, the industry has been asking for. And when I think when you talk about effectiveness, we have a pretty dysfunctional Congress. 
we have the invocation of various executive authorities to make some of this go. But the place it's going to be the most effective is in letting the companies run. They have been asking for regulations here because they want to focus their competitive efforts in a dramatically expanding space. So if you know that if you're going to make an algorithm for landlords to screen potential tenants on a website, well, now there's some rules of the road. And the companies know inside of which boundaries they need to compete, and they can compete ferociously. So you know, Microsoft, Adobe, Google, they have been asking, OpenAI have been asking for regulations like this. I think this is going to give some stability to the market, and we'll see another wave of competition. So let me turn to, uh, let me ask you one more question, Neil, before I move on. This idea of somehow watermarking AI-generated content, is this doable? I don't. I haven't seen anything that says it is doable yet. Uh, and it, you know, last month at the Code Conference, which obviously CNBC helped us out with, uh, I had the CEO of Getty Images, Craig Peters. He said, "Look, the problem is not marking the good stuff. The problem is finding the needle in the haystack, and the haystack <clears throat> keeps getting bigger with all of the AI-generated content we see in our feeds. So you got to develop some technology to actually consistently mark the content in a way that regular people understand what they're looking at." and everyone agrees to use. And then you got to convince a bunch of people to care. I would put that right up against Mark Zuckerberg on the last meta earnings call saying, I can see a future where our feed-based products have as much AI generated or edited content as anything mm -hmm. else. That's the future of these networks. Whether or not a little bit of watermarking can stem that tide, I think technologically remains to be seen. Culturally, wide open. No idea if that can happen. James, I'm also curious about this angle here on uh, uh, International, where it says uh, developing standards for working on AI with foreign partners. For instance, I, I think some of the options would be disclosure if a, a major other nation comes and says we want to do a big um, sort of, a, we want to run your large language models, things like that. What kind of international disclosure do you think is appropriate and why? Well, one, I, I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, some of the countries that might potentially be involved who are, who are competitors, perhaps military rivals, may not be utterly forthcoming. I'm very concerned that these kinds of disclosure rules will rapidly become both internationally and domestically uh, mandatory rules, not just to mandate disclosure, but mandate how these things are tested. Listen, we've been talking here that, how, that this is like a gift to business. They're so they're going to be so happy. Well, the people who may not be happy are businesses, uh, companies, startups that don't exist yet. That now will have to compete with a perhaps a highly regulated, paperwork intensive, costly regulatory scheme that just a few weeks ago it seems like was voluntary. Now there's mandates. Now there might be more mandates on, on the kinds of testing. I think we what we're seeing here is really a wholesale change and how America regulates digital technology markets when our previous way, which is a light regulatory approach, gave America a lead in digital technology and all the big important technology companies. I'm not sure doing something else is a great idea. Eamon, I assume that the, that the Biden administration wouldn't see it that way. They would, they would say that they're just doing what they see as responsible and not using too heavy a hand here. Yeah, look, their argument is you can't have the Wild West here in terms of AI because there are safety concerns that you have to think about uh, with AI getting potentially out of control, AI involved uh, in bioscience, uh, AI involved uh, in national security. And so you do need some rules of the road. And, and to Jimmy's point, yeah, that creates increased costs and increased friction for startups and smaller companies in particular. But I think if you ask the Biden administration, they would say, you know, this is something that we just have to do with this new emerging technology. We have to 
give some rules of the road here uh, in order to prevent all these negative consequences Why? from being built into the AI industry from the beginning. All right. Gentlemen, for now, yeah, they made like seven Terminator movies. No one ever said, boy, I wish we had a light yeah. touch regulatory the con- framework. The concerns are science fictional. <laughs> the concerns are science fictional at this point. Let's Wait, make so that to be clear. clear, so Neelai, you think that we needed the regulatory framework to prevent uh, the Terminator ending. And, and James, you think if we get the regulatory framework that that ushers in apocalypse now? No, here, here's what I think is that this is that this entire effort is based on one uh, kind of like regret that social media isn't more heavily regulated. Mm-hmm. I don't think that necessarily is a great idea. Or they're science fictional. These are science fictional concerns influenced by, by culture about mm-hmm. the idea of, of uh, AI convincing us to create killer pandemics. And now we're going to, this embryonic industry, we're going to submit to a, it, put it into the loving embrace of America's administrative state. And I don't <laughs> think there's enough focus on harnessing that's, this I just technology want to be clear. rather than what like we can do to slow nonsense. it down. If you look at the embryonic industry, it is billions of dollars worth of research and development over decades to get to a point where you have a, a GPT-4. This is not new technology. This is stuff that has been building for a long time. And it is the people who are building Given where it could go, it's embryonic. are the most negative about it. Given where it could go, it's embryonic. They're the ones saying we need this. They're the ones saying this could end the world. Yes, the established it's players that. and the incumbents and, and, are and saying what we've got we in need this. That's a very old story. saying, here's an executive order based on the Defense Production Act. This is the lightest of light touch. They're, a next president... Right. Wipe this yeah. away with a pen. The voluntary right? commitments a, a month ago. This isn't a new regulatory now, now it's a little bit heavier. I didn't hear the last point. Well, there. I understand that you want to live in like anarcho-capitalism, but this saying, hey, you got to do some red teaming exercise and be transparent and be transparent. And we should figure out how to tell people if they're looking at real images or AI generated ones, which, by the way, I don't even know if it's possible. That's not a lot. Right. Well, and it's the. Yeah industry that has asked for these rules so they can go compete without being worried about being undercut by less moral competitors. Well, gentlemen, this... I'm not not impressed by industry asking to be regulated. You are very impressed by that. I am not. It's a very old story of incumbents saying regulate us, and then we'll use our our, our Washington offices to work and shape that regulation to our advantage. It's an old story. You may never have heard of it, though. Gentlemen, we will continue this. Good conversation. (laughs) <laughs> Nile Patel and James Pethakoukas, we thank you. And, and, and the relatively quiet Eamon Javers. Eamon, thank you as well. That's right. <laughs> you bet. Coming up, shipping supply chains are still recovering from the impact of the pandemic. But droughts and record low water levels could ensure the industry never fully recovers. We'll discuss in today's Rising Risks when Power Lunch comes right back. Whatever you're wearing eating or putting in your home, the odds are those goods spent some time getting to you by ship and the supply chain disruptions we saw post-pandemic may pale in comparison to the disruptions we could continue to see because of climate change. Diana Olick explains in her continuing series on the rising risks. In the Panama Canal this past summer, severe drought caused authorities to reduce the daily number of ships traveling through. That resulted in severe backups that hit supply chains. At the end of September, they did it again. A similar reduction in 2019 cost global shipping as much as $370 million. That same year, record low water levels in the Mississippi River disrupted transportation of agricultural goods, costing about a billion dollars in losses. All of this is not lost on Maersk, the world's second largest container ship company. 
We firmly believe that climate change poses a great threat to the shipping industry and the consumer overall. We are definitely seeing disruption, disruption happening all, all the time. About 90% of traded goods are carried over water, and maritime trade volume is expected to triple by 2050 as demand increases. This as shipping is at increasing risk from tropical storms, inland flooding, sea level rise, drought, and extreme heat. Well, actually imagine that if the port has an impact, that we are not able to unload the cargo here. There's a downstream impact to the supply chain and also towards the upstream, so it's all connected. The impacts of climate change on ports alone, from damage to disruption, could cost the shipping industry up to $10 billion annually by 2050 and up to $25 billion by 2100. Of all the transportation sectors, shipping is one of the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change, whether it's out at sea, in canals and rivers, or even coming here into port. But shipping is also one of the slowest to cut carbon emissions. In September, Maersk unveiled its first container ship powered by green methanol, which emits less CO2 than traditional vessels. 24 more are coming, but the fuel is both expensive and scarce. The technology, you could say it's ready, it's there, but it's a major shift that is needed and it will take a lot of time. Portzilla is a global technology and energy company building engines for the marine industry. Even if we have engines ready for new fuels, the fuel needs to be produced. There needs to be significant investments made and it needs to be green fuels. It means it needs to be produced by green energy. Shipping accounts for roughly 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but it took until this past July for the international industry to finally agree to a net zero goal by 2050. It's actually a big step compared to where countries wanted to go five years ago. But even with this big step, it's not the goals that has been set will not bring us to the Paris Agreement, not bring us to the 1.5 degrees. So you could rightfully so it's a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. In the meantime, damage control is the main focus. As we speak, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is using a dredge ship to push out silt in the Mississippi River near Vicksburg. Extremely low water levels are causing ships there to run aground, and the chief of navigation for the Corps told local media the low water level could cause a major financial impact. Back to you guys. Diana, thanks very much, and we'll see you in Washington on Wednesday. Technical support is next. Welcome back to Power Lunch. It's time for technical support. And today we're looking at some names reporting this week with earnings momentum. They were featured on CNBC Pro. It means estimates are up about 15% in the last three to six months. They have a pretty favorable rating among the street. The majority give it a buy rating, uh, for instance. So here to chart the three names we've whittled down are, is Ari Wald. He's managing director and head of technical analysis over at Oppenheimer. Ari, welcome. It's good to have you in the house. Oh, it's good to be here. The first name is Marathon Petroleum. The stock chart is already behind me. It's up 25% year to date. Are you a buyer? I am. So I think what the what we're trying to do here is blend earnings momentum with price momentum. And one of the best uh, in terms of price momentum, Marathon's really been best of the sector. I mean, here's a, a stock that's coming off a new cycle high. That's a good thing. That's an indication of relative strength. Uh, what we want to do when the trend is higher is buy pullback. So as it goes into earnings here, I wouldn't say it's the most tactical where you have to buy it ahead of the tape. But if there happens to be a sell off, 
I think it would mark a good opportunity, okay. specifically looking at the prior breakout above the highs from earlier this year. Very often, former resistance comes, becomes support. It's a little bit higher Future than that. Support. I didn't draw it so cleanly. Around 137. If you get us all off into 137, I think a marathon becomes tactical. And obviously the purple line here is the 200-day moving average. So a sell-off into 137, would you stay on the sidelines otherwise? I mean, what if it's a good quarter? I think you have to be there for it. I mean, here's a stock that's been on our large cap buy list since August of 2021. I'm not trying to buy, time the ebbs and flows. I want to ride it. I want to stick it with my winners. MPC is a winner. All right, MPC is a winner. Let's move on to Aptiv then. Auto parts maker upgraded by J.P. Morgan recently. Auto sector in general has had some stock troubles lately. What's your take on this one? Here's a great example. Not all earnings momentum is created equally. Here's one without good price momentum. Mm -hmm. And I think the sign here really occurred in the summer. What was happening in the summer? You had a strong market rally, S&P at new cycle highs. Aptiv wasn't able to get it. Aptiv was relatively weak, was below where it peaked earlier in the year. And then you see what happens when the market tide comes in, the weak get weaker. And that's exactly what happened with Aptiv through this market sell off. It breaks trend. It is now at a point where it's right at its June low. If it can't hold there, not much to point to until you get to the 2022 low. So for you, this might be more if there's a positive reaction, you'd still be. I mean, how positive a reaction could make you a buyer? Is there any Point, you know, if the stock jumps 20% or something, or, or, or is this just a, a watch out kind of name? So I'm a fan of buy relative strength, sell relative weakness. With that said, if you were to move back above the 200-day average, that would be an incremental trading positive. If I was short the stock, I'd be thinking that as far as a, a level to uh, uh, derail my cautious view on the stock. All right, fair enough. The last stock is one that you picked because you're watching it. CME Group, what does this chart, both the earnings momentum and the price momentum, tell you? I wanted to bring this one back. I was on, uh, last time I was talking CNB Screener, this one came up. And why we liked it so much was it was coming out of a, a reversal pattern. And it had consolidated sideways, and we were making the case it was going to break out to the upside. It did just that, and now you have a tactical pullback. It has come right back into the breakout level. There's a 50-day average right there. And this is a broader theme as well. Capital markets, you wouldn't know it given the weakness in banks. Capital markets actually ranks as the, the top industry in our momentum ranks. Wow. So there's, Based on what, debt issuance or futures activity? or there, There's security and exchanges working within their CBOE, some of the, the, the Morningstar, the data providers. So whatever the theme is, the charts are telling the story. It's not just one or two names. Mm-hmm. When it's across the board, there's action there. And, and CME Group, it's also rated outperformed by F- Oppenheimer Fundamental Research. So for all these reasons, we like this reversal and trend. You see the 200-day average, you buy the pullback in anticipation of higher prices. And we'll leave it there. Terry Duffy must be happy. Uh, Ari, thanks so much. We appreciate you coming in today. Ari Wald. All right, more Power Lunch next as the Dow is up nearly 550 points. We'll be right back with more on the markets and some other popcorn to tide you over. that that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like how about that that's a premium banging olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a biosonic sound experience and that that's our legacy you ready to be a part of it unlock the energy of the all-electric zdx type s order now at acura.com